Father, we declare you to be glorious. We declare you to be worthy of all that we can say that is good about you. We are ordinary people. There's nothing special about us, but there's nothing that is not extraordinary about you. And so we praise you. We glorify you. We magnify your name. And we come before you now to hear from your word, not to be informed, not to be entertained, but to be transformed by what your spirit is going to say to us through that time. For we pray all of these things in the extraordinary name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you are visiting with us this morning, and I hope that you are, I hope we have some first-timers. Some of you might be a little surprised to hear us talking so much about Burma. Say, what's with Burma? It's just this ordinary country in some part of the world, and there are a lot of countries that are facing a lot of oppression. Why Burma? Well, we think it's because God has called us to care for Burma. We can't do everything, but we can do some things, and we do some things well. And one of the things we want to do well is love Burma and call upon the Lord to set them free and let them know what God wants for their lives. So, <clears throat> in case you're wondering, that's why an ordinarily, ordinary little country, ordinary people that got a passion for it, and yet God is doing some extraordinary things. That's my sermon theme for this morning is ordinary Jesus made disciples in the ordinary things. Uh, I had a parable of my own this morning to help underscore this. I got up early to go into the kitchen, get a little bite to eat, reached down, opened the refrigerator, took an egg out of the refrigerator, and suddenly the refrigerator door fell on top of me. (laughs) Fell off of the refrigerator, and I'm lying on the kitchen floor with a refrigerator door on my face. That was a great way to start daylight savings time. (laughs) Nothing says ordinary like ketchup and salsa bottles spread all over the floor at 5.30 in the morning. So I'm not sure what the Lord was trying to tell me, but here we go. Someone was teasing me the other day about our 90-day challenge. He said, you're just pounding away on this thing. Guilty as charged. Yes, I am pounding away on this thing because I believe that what we're doing with 90 Day Challenge is going to give us the kind of life-giving habits that will change us as a church, change us as people. So yes, we are pounding away. They say that if you do something for 30 days, it will become a habit. So we're going to do something for 90 days. Every day we are reading a gospel chapter together as an entire church. And we're asking two simple questions. What do I learn about Jesus What do I learn about disciple-making? And I continue, even to today and this morning, I continue to hear the difference that this is making in our lives as a congregation. I hope you're part of it. So here's our accountability moment for the, the morning. How many of you in this last week read at least some of the seven chapters that we were assigned to read? Look at that. Awesome. How many of you managed to pull off all seven chapters? Let's see. All right, all right, but good, you're, you're working on it, that's awesome, that's awesome. God is doing some great stuff, and one of the things we're hoping we're going to learn from Jesus in his Gospels is how to be disciple makers. He said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. That was a command, and so if we belong to Jesus, we're supposed to do what he tells us to do. But the fact is that we find it daunting, don't we? I mean, is there anyone here... Anyone here who doesn't find the prospect of of making disciples for Jesus just a little bit overwhelming, a little bit daunting? And one of the reasons, I think, is what I touched on last week, and that is this. We don't think we know enough. 
Isn't that right? We don't feel like we know all of the right stuff and that we can speak eloquently enough and that we can defend the scriptures and answer the questions that, that people are going to bring our way. And so it just, it frightens us. We think you've got to be a, a seminary trained person in order to be able to do this. And frankly, sometimes you wonder. I, I was reading what someone wrote this last week. I was reading about what someone wrote about Luke. Luke chapter 15. One verse in Luke 15 Here's what somebody wrote. Maybe you'll find it helpful. I found it a a little confusing. Here's what he said. The verb subject order here in the first and is of the least nine instances of this more Semitic word order in the parable. The concentration, though not the phenomenon as such, counts against Lucan formulation. The legal use of ta epibalon meros, the portion due, is documented in the papyri and inscriptions of Pulman. The word used for estate, bios, also means life, manner of life, means of subsistence. The estate is what supports the life of the family. The legalities and the social consequences of such a settlement upon the younger son in the lifetime of his father have been painstakingly and repeatedly analyzed, but without the emergence of a clear consensus on some of the main points. Find that helpful? Everything is clear for you, right? That is certainly one way to understand Luke chapter 15. I want to share another way for you to understand Luke 15. So if you have your Bibles, would you close them? I want you to close your Bibles. If you have your iPhones on, turn the screen off. And I want your eyes right here. Because I want to tell you a story from God's Word. All right? Here we go. The tax collectors and the sinners were gathering around Jesus in order to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, He welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them a parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Will he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after his lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, He puts it on his shoulders joyfully and takes it back home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose you are a woman and you have ten silver coins and you lose one. Will she not light a lamp and sweep her house and search carefully until she's found that coin? And when she finds that coin, she will call her friends and her neighbors and say, Rejoice with me for I have found my lost coin. In the same manner, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one person who repents. A man had two sons. The youngest son came to his father and said, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his estate between them. And not long after that, the younger son gathered everything together and set out for a distant land where he squandered his wealth 
on wild living. After he had spent everything he had, a severe famine fell upon the country and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to a a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed his pigs. The man longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said to himself, How many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And yet here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the man called out to his servants, Quick, bring me the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the the older son was in the field. And when he drew near the house, he heard the sounds of music and dancing. And so he called to one of the servants to find out what was going on. The servant said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him home safe and sound. But the older son was angry and refused to go in. So the father came out to him and pleaded with him. But the son answered his father, Look, all of these years I have been slaving for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. And you never even gave me a baby goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad For this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. This is a story from God's word.
So what was different about that story for us today? What was different in the hearing of it for you? Isn't it that you heard it the way Jesus' disciples would have heard it for the first time? You weren't reading it. You were experiencing him as he told the story, right? Looking in his eyes, watching his hands move, listening to the inflection of his voice, using your imagination to enter into these stories, to identify with the characters that Jesus was portraying here for us. Is, was it complicated for you to understand head nods? No. It wasn't complicated at all, was it? What is, the, what is the theme? Lost things, what? Found, right? The theme is lost things that have been found. Valuable things that are lost. Ordinary, yes, but, but valuable ordinary things that are lost. A sheep that was lost, a coin that was lost. Two sons that were lost, right? Because both were lost. The theme of this powerful but simple thing, ordinary but valuable things are lost and someone goes looking for them with passion and resolve. The shepherd won't give up until he finds his lost sheep and when he finds him, he throws him on his shoulders and carries him back home joyfully. The woman will not give up until she finds that coin in the corner of the floor where she dropped it. And she finds it and she rejoices. And then the image of this father who never stops watching for his wandering son. And we know that's true because we read that when he was still far off, his father saw him. Why? Because he was looking every day. And he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. It may be the best verse in the New Testament. Because it's not only the story that we're reading. It is the story of God. And God's heart towards us when we were the wandering lost ones. That's the way God sees us. And... Every finding ends up the same way. How? Rejoicing with a party. Every finding ends up with a huge party. There's nothing very complicated about it, but it is so deep. And it evokes such heartfelt response. Did you feel it? I know I had you. Because the story grips you, doesn't it? And you enter into this and you're asking yourself, who am I? Who am I in this story? Am I that that wandering sheep that is so beaten up, so beleaguered that I need someone to carry me home because I don't think I can make it on my own? Is it that young son who is making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision and ends up in a pigsty of guilt and shame? Or are you identifying with a father who longs to have your children return home to a place of safety? With whom do you identify in these stories? Simple stories, profound stories. It was the genius of Jesus' teaching. 
It was the genius of Jesus' teaching. He used ordinary things to make extraordinary, eternal kingdom points. Just think about it from this last week. From our last week of reading. A fig tree, a mustard seed, a donkey, an ox, a contractor who's building a tower, a king who's fighting a war, and a lost sheep, and a lost coin. And two lost sons, ordinary things. Don't you find it interesting that that when Jesus taught, he did so clearly and simply with ordinary, everyday examples that anyone could understand if they had the heart to believe. And that is a a key understanding of, of the parables. Because amazingly, Jesus could tell these same parables, and those whose hearts were prone not to believe couldn't understand a word he was saying. And yet the simple, earnest, seeking, longing people knew immediately where Jesus was going. And when he taught this way, he was perceived as someone who had authority. That's what the people said of him again and again. He speaks as someone with authority. Like he actually has the right to say this stuff. When he taught simply with everyday items, he was viewed as one who spoke with powerful authority. And yet the religious leaders who could spin all kinds of complex theological treatises, they couldn't even recognize the kingdom of God when the king was standing in front of them. When the king was raising up dead people, when the king was multiplying fish and loaves, when the king was healing, when the king was calming the storm, they couldn't see him. The power of the gospel of Jesus is that it is ordinary, and it is simple, and yet it is deep, and we try to make it too hard. Honestly, brothers and sisters, we try to make it too hard. We have complicated charts and we have systematic theologies and we have very thick books and we have DVDs which explain everything in minutia. And I wonder, if more of us grasped the simplicity with which Jesus shared the truths of the kingdom, I wonder if we would be less frightened to talk about them. If the parables of Jesus which speak of the kingdom of life, used ordinary things to teach us. Maybe there's one thing that teaches us more than any other, and here it is. It doesn't take a seminary degree. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to be able to talk about what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Last week, I, I said that Jesus made disciples by asking questions. So I think these parables, this rich, and this is the reason I chose it, because these seven chapters are filled with rich parables. I think these parables ask us three questions today. Here's the first question. First, could you tell the stories of Jesus? You yourself, could you tell the stories of Jesus? If someone wanted to know how God feels about people who are, who are lost, who have thrown away their lives in sin and rebellion, could you tell the story of the prodigal son? If someone wanted to know how eager God is to, how to, to welcome and to love and to treat the outsider well, the outcast well, the repulsive people well, could you tell 
the story of the Good Samaritan? If someone wanted to know whether God really is excited about welcoming us into his presence for eternity, could you tell the story of the great banquet? If someone wanted to know how God feels about those who are spiritually arrogant, could you tell the simple parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector who both prayed? Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Can you tell them what Jesus taught? One of the benefits of being in the 90-day challenge is we've immersed ourselves in the teachings of Jesus. We've immersed ourselves in the stories that he told. And now we are better equipped if we paid attention to tell those stories ourselves to others. Can you? Have you ever done it? Here's what I want to challenge you. This week, tell a story of Jesus to someone else. Just don't read it. Tell it. Tell the story. And it doesn't matter if it's every word by word. Tell the gist of the story to someone else, to your spouse, to your parents, to your friends. Do it as a life group this week. As a life group, tell the story. Tell the story to each other. Can you tell the stories of Jesus? That's the first question this poses to us. Here's the second question. Can you tell your own story? Do you even... Know what your own story is. I mean, you do, but have you ever told it to anyone? If you're a disciple of Christ, and not everyone here is, but if you are, do you have a three-minute version, an elevator speech? If someone said to you, I hear that you're a Christian, could you please tell me what that means to you? Why in the world do you believe this stuff? Do you have your story to tell? I talked to a woman the other day. She said, Jesus has transformed my husband. Those are pretty powerful words. Do you think he has a story to tell about what Christ has done to him, in him? One of the most powerful disciple-making tools that you will have in your arsenal is simply this. Telling your own story about how Jesus saved you and changed you. Why? Because no one can argue with you because you are the expert on you. Right? They can bring questions. They can argue with what you have to say about the Bible. They can argue with what you have to say about theology. They cannot argue with what you have to say about you. And if you said, this is what I was, this is what Jesus did, this is how I'm different, and this is how it's changed the lives of everyone around me, they cannot do anything but say, wow. But if you've never tried to put your own story in words, you're going to miss out on the opportunity when someone says, could you tell me that story? So what if this week, what if this week when you walk through the doors of amnesia, you fight the instinct to forget, and the next time you sit down to a quiet time, you jot down a five-point outline. Here's my story of following Jesus. Maybe you practice it with your spouse, with your family, with your friends, with your life group. Do you know your own story? Can you tell your own story? And then here's the third question. Can you translate the ordinary stories of your life into spiritual principles? Do you ever think about it this way? I mean, we do believe in a sovereign God. That's a big thing in our Reformed tradition. God is sovereign, and he uses everything we experience to teach us about him, to draw us more into into him. 
So are you able to see the things that occur in your life, the good, the hard, the whimsical, the stupid, the funny? Are you able to see them as ways in which God is using that as really a life parable for you? I have a friend who says that his mom does this all the time. Recently, she got pulled over for a speeding ticket, and she got a ticket, and she said, I just knew the Lord was telling me I have to slow down in my life. I have to slow down on the road, but, but I have, I'm rushed. My whole life is rushed. After I started my day with a refrigerator door on my face, I, I was thinking, okay, well, Lord, what are, what are you telling me? Maybe that I don't want you to eat eggs so much, or... Um, or life is falling in on me, or I need more closure in my life. I don't know. (laughs) My son Cooper and I have been sharing the 90-day challenge by email back and forth, and 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 he's actually pretty good at this, at at pulling these life story illustrations out of his life. And so we were dealing with a text, remember where Jesus curses Capernaum? And Bethsaida and Chorazin, these three cities in the Galilee where he just did these incredible miracles, but they never repented. And Jesus curses him. He says, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen that stuff, they'd still be existing today. And I asked Cooper what he made of this passage. Here's what he wrote. An example I can think of is when a kid covets another kid's Xbox. I had to explain that first service, what? that was Xbox and only hangs out with him just to play on his Xbox he's completely ignoring the relationship he could have with the kid that owns it it seems Capernaum and those other cities were too into Jesus Xbox his miracles and not into Jesus himself Jesus wants us to be into him pretty good There's a place for seminary training and there's a place for deep theological reflection. I'm glad or I wouldn't have a job. But sometimes I think we overthink this disciple-making stuff. We make it so complicated and so daunting that we freeze up. And if we could ever come to realize that we have a story about what Jesus has done for us, a story of our ordinary life that continues to be touched by an extraordinary Lord as He shapes us and calls us into eternal relationship with Him, it might transform the way we think about disciple-making.